0: Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Welcome back. Happy Monday if you're listening to this on the day that it drops. I'm writing this while still under a stay-at-home, stay-safe order, but it's due to drop the day after the order is lifted. We'll see if that's the case. Whatever is happening, I hope that you are still safe, too. Today we have one of the most famous of the Greek tragedies, Oedipus Rex, or Oedipus the King, or Oedipus Tyrannos. The last one is really the most accurate since Rex is a Latin word and Sophocles was writing in Greek. And Tyrannos is also accurate because Rex or King implies that Oedipus inherited the throne of Thebes when instead he becomes king because he marries the widowed queen. But those are technicalities and most people are familiar with the Latin name for this play slash story. I'm working from the Dudley Fitz Robert Fitzgerald translation from 1949 It's the same book that I used for Antigone. Despite many of their transliteration of names, they opt for the Latin title for the play, so it really doesn't matter which one you use. You can easily find a translation online if you don't already own or wish to buy one. Oedipus Rex premiered around 429 BCE. It is chronologically the first story in Sophocles' Oedipus cycle, but as we have seen, it is historically the second to be performed. Despite its popularity even in its own time, it didn't win any prizes. The original audience was likely familiar with the myth on which the play is based, and you probably are familiar with it too. After all, to quote Tom Lehrer, his name appears in Freud's index because he loved his mother. As with most of Sophocles' plays, the cast is small. The named characters are Oedipus and Jocasta, uh, the king and queen of Thebes, and depending on your translation, you'll see her name written as either Iocaste or Jocasta. Fitz and Fitzgerald use the transliteration of Iocaste as opposed to the Latinized Jocasta. but they also kill the play Oedipus Rex, so go figure. So we have Oedipus and Yocasta and Creon, Yocasta's brother, whom you may recall as the king in Antigone. The only other character with a name is Tiresias, the blind soothsayer whom you should also remember from Antigone. The unnamed characters are a priest, a shepherd, and two messengers, and the homogenous chorus is comprised of the elders of Thebes, just like in Antigone. Oh, and speaking of Antigone, she and Ismene do have a brief non-speaking moment in this play, too. Before we dive into the plot, we'll take a short break. Play opens outside the palace of Thebes. Oedipus and a whole crowd of non-speaking people of Thebes enter. The crowd takes position as suppliants at the altars that are on stage. Oedipus asks them why they have done so. He tells them that he doesn't want secondhand knowledge, which is why he has come to them himself. After all, he is the great Oedipus. He turns to the oldest suppliant, since that obviously means he's in charge, and it turns out that it was a good guess. The oldest man is a priest. The priest explains, there's a horrible plague on Thebes. No one can can escape. But Oedipus can save them. After all, he is the only person who was wise enough to solve the riddle of the Sphinx and save Thebes from her. And Yes, in Greek mythology, the Sphinx was female. Surely Oedipus is wise enough to solve the riddle of the plague. Oedipus expresses his pity. He was aware of the plague, but their suffering does not compare to his. He feels the grief of each and every person in Thebes, whereas the suppliants before him only feel their own individual pain, insert Maui singing, you're welcome. He assures the people that he has spent a great deal of time trying to determine the source of the plague, but it is beyond him. He sent Creon, his brother-in-law to Delphi, to ask Apollo's oracle there for guidance. Oedipus isn't sure what's taking so long. Creon should be back by now. And, with that perfect theatrical timing, the priest says that Creon has indeed just arrived. And sure enough, Creon enters. Creon explains that the oracle said the only way to end the plague was to expel the murder of Laius, the man who was the king before Oedipus. Oedipus never met Laius, but he's heard a bit about him from other people. Creon describes what he knows of Laius' death, the report of a lone survivor. That survivor described how a band of highwaymen attacked the king and his companions. Oedipus vows to solve the mystery. Reassured, the priest and the suppliants exit, and Oedipus and Creon go into the palace. The chorus of Theban elders enters, and the only big difference between them and the suppliants who just exited is that these suppliants are of all ages and genders. The parados is basically a song of supplication asking the gods to end the plague. Oedipus enters and tells them that he's already working on it. You're welcome, but he could use a bit of help. If anyone has information, they should come forward. But more than that, if the murderer turns out to be a foreigner, he should find no shelter in Thebes. But Oedipus is determined to find that murderer. After all, Laius was Oedipus's wife's first husband. If they had had children, those children would be siblings to Oedipus's children. Think about it. Laius's son would have been brother to Oedipus's son. And when I say think about it, I mean that this is actually what Oedipus says. Not that you should think about it, although you should think about it because, yeah, this family is messed up. The chorus leader recommends that Oedipus also consult Tiresias, the blind seer who spends his time soothsaying in Thebes. Oedipus is happy to take this advice. Tiresias enters, guided as usual by his page. But once once he's there, Tiresias says that he doesn't think it would be a very good idea to say anything. It's not going to end well. Oedipus accuses the seer of being in on the plot to murder Laius, and Tiresias finally relents, telling Oedipus that he himself is the cause of the suffering in Thebes. Oedipus is appalled at this and asks Tiresias to repeat himself. Tiresias counters with a classic, it wasn't clear the first time, but he does repeat himself with an even more clear, you're the murderer. Oedipus is not going to take this accusation line down. He accuses Tiresias of being nothing more than a fortune teller who swindles people who seek his services. Tiresias shrugs this off. After all, he works for Apollo, not the king. But that curse that Oedipus has dreaded all these years, that curse is going to come back and bite him in the face, and only night will be left in his eyes. And then Oedipus can curse Tiresias and Creon, but Oedipus will be the one who suffers. Ooh, foreshadowing much? Before he exits, Tiresias makes one final prophecy. The murderer is in Thebes. Oedipus thinks him foreign-born, but in fact, the man will prove to be a son of Thebes. More than that, this man will be both brother and father to his children. Tiresias and the page exit, and Oedipus goes back inside. The chorus sings about fate and prophecy. Creon enters. He has heard that Oedipus blames him for conspiring to murder Laius. He wishes to reassure the chorus that he had nothing to do with it. Oedipus enters and he and Creon have words. I mean, this is a Greek play after all, and all the violence will take place off stage. Creon insists that he has no desire to be king, which is interesting since he has no qualms in taking over after Ateocles and Polynices die, but at least at this point in the story, he says he doesn't want to be king. But basically, their argument boils down to who loves Thebes more. Yocasta enters and asks them what they're fighting about. She tells Oedipus to go inside and cool down, but he doesn't listen. The chorus supports her, and eventually the two men stop arguing, and Creon exits. Yocasta asks Oedipus to explain what the fight was about, and he tells her that Creon has accused him of murdering Laius. Yocasta asks what proof was presented, and Oedipus tells her about Tiresias. She scoffs because prophecies mean nothing. Why, back when she was still married to Lyas, they consulted an oracle who told them that their son would murder his father, and that definitely didn't happen. I mean, sure, they had a bouncing baby boy and all, but they left him exposed on a mountain, so he definitely died, so there's no possible way that Lyas was killed by his son. Not at all. So what does Tiresias know? Oedipus is somewhat assuaged by this story. He asks for more details about Lias' death. Yocasta describes the crossroads, where three roads meet, where Lias and his entourage were accosted by bandits and murdered. This detail disturbs Oedipus, and he asks to know more about Lias. What did he look like? Well, kind of like you, Yocasta tells him. Which, yeah... Yokasta explains that the lone survivor was one of their servants, but he was so distressed working in the palace after the attack that he was reassigned and is now, at his request, happily working as as a shepherd far from the city. Oedipus asks for the shepherd to be recalled so that he can tell his story. And while they wait, Oedipus starts talking. Oh, and does he have stories? First, he tells how back when he was in Corinth, this drunk guy told him that his parents weren't really his parents, that he was, you know, adopted. Polybus and Merope, the king and queen of Corinth, reassured Oedipus that it doesn't matter what anybody says, he's still their son. But Oedipus was still troubled and went to Delphi to consult the oracle, who told him that he was fated to murder his father and marry his mother, and he was so distressed by the thought of murdering Polybus and marrying Merope that he said goodbye and left. Then he tells the story of how he met a man with an entourage at a crossroads where three roads meet. The same crossroads? And they got into an argument, and he killed all of them? (laughs) but it couldn't possibly have been Laius because the reports were that a whole group of highwaymen murdered Laius. must have been some other rich person with an entourage that he slaughtered. In case you're wondering why I didn't provide much background of the myth in my introduction, now you know why. Oedipus speaks in pages and provides all the background you need. Yocasta agrees, that they have nothing to worry about. The shepherd clearly said that there were Marauders, plural. So it must be two different incidents. Plus, the baby died first. She chooses not to give the oracles a second thought. They go into the palace to wait for the shepherd to arrive. The chorus sings about pride and fate and how Yocaste and Oedipus maybe should pay more attention to the oracles. Yocaste enters and prays that Oedipus will find peace. A messenger enters seeking Oedipus. He has come from Corinth with news that Polybus is dead. She sends a servant to fetch Oedipus so that he can hear this bittersweet news. After all, it means that Oedipus did not kill his father. Oedipus enters and is both saddened and relieved by the news. As Yocaste throws in, a nice told you so too. The messenger asks Oedipus to return to Corinth to take the throne, but on learning that Merope is still alive, Oedipus refuses. He will not go anywhere near Corinth as long as either of his parents lives. He simply can't risk marrying his mother. The messenger tells him not to worry about it. Polybus and Merope aren't his birth parents, and he should know. You see, he used to be a shepherd, and one day when he was tending his sheep in the mountains, not too far from Thebes, he was chatting with this other shepherd who had found this baby, and Polybus and Merope hadn't been able to have children of their own, so the messenger took the baby to them, and they raised the baby as their own. And that baby grew up to be Oedipus. No one knows exactly who his parents are. Probably some herdsmen or another, given where he was found. Now, as this whole conversation is going on between Oedipus and the messenger, the wheels in Yocaste's head are turning. She tells Oedipus to stop asking questions, that it's better to leave things where they are, but he is insistent. She tells him that he should listen to her for his own good, but he doesn't. After a short but heated argument, Yocaste storms off into the palace. The chorus says this seems like a bad thing, but Oedipus doesn't care he wants to know who his parents are. The shepherd enters and reluctantly admits that the child who wound up being raised as the son of Polybus and Merope was, in fact, the son of Laius and Yocasta. Yocasta had given him the baby to expose when he took his sheep into the mountains, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. With this story, Oedipus realizes that the prophecy has come true, and he runs into the palace. The chorus sings about Hephaestus, how Oedipus and Iocaste could not escape fate. A messenger enters from the palace and tells the chorus that the queen is dead. As you've already figured out, she figured out she was married to her son before Oedipus did. When she acted the, exited into the palace, she shut herself up in her room. And when Oedipus followed her inside, he forced his way in and found that she'd hanged herself. And he took the brooches from her dress, and crying that he could no longer look on the misery that his actions had wrought, used them to gouge out his eyes. The messenger says that now Oedipus is calling for someone to lead him to the gates of the city and exile him, because that is the punishment, that he should be- say that he had said should befall the person who killed Laius. At this point, Oedipus, now blind, enters. And he monologues about how miserable he is. And he curses the shepherd who rescued him from the mountain. Creon enters and attempts to offer pity and kindness to his brother-in-law, who is also his nephew. But Oedipus will have none of it. He said that the murder should be punished with exile, and so that is what must be done. That is the only way to end the plague on Thebes. But before he goes, he asks for his daughters once more. And Antigone and Ismene are brought on, and he holds them and weeps for them. After all, what sort of future will they have? Who will want to marry the daughters of the man who married his mother? Now, on a side note, we know that Creon won't have a problem with this at least later, you know, at least until Antigone defies him and buries Polynices. But that comes later, and the girls are still young in this play. Oedipus begs Creon to care for them and be the father that he no longer can be. But then he begs not to be separated from them, but to be exiled still. Obviously, not all of these things can happen. Creon decrees that Oedipus will stay in Thebes until the oracles can tell them what they should do. Creon, Oedipus, Antigone, and Ismene exit into the palace. The play ends on the dark note of the chorus reminding us that no one can truly be deemed happy until they are dead. And with that, let's take a break. There's a lot to unpack in this play. I didn't provide much background to the myth because, as I noted, most of it is told within the play. And we've also seen parts of the myth told in Seven Against Thebes and Antigone. The one part that's not expounded upon is the story of the Sphinx, but you've probably heard the riddle of the Sphinx before. What starts on four legs then has two legs and has three legs before it dies. The story goes that the Sphinx would stop travelers and pose this riddle. If they couldn't solve it, she would eat them. And no one solved it until Oedipus showed up. Have you figured out the answer yet? It's a person. First a crawling baby on four legs, and then a walking adult on two, and finally an elder using a cane. Two legs and and a cane. And that is how Oedipus freed Thebes from the the Sphinx. But since that's not really important to this part of the story, you can see why Sophocles glosses over it. And even if you didn't know this story, the people who saw this play when it premiered did know it, so Sophocles didn't need to go into detail for them. But we do need the detail of the oracles, because that is how Oedipus learns that he did indeed kill his father and marry his mother. The ancient audience, for the most part, would not have been surprised by any of the things that happened in this play. Much of the suspense comes from the fact that the audience knows more than Oedipus, He says that a foreign murderer should not be sheltered in Thebes. We, the audience, already know that Oedipus is the murderer and that, as far as he knows, he is a foreigner. We know that Iocaste is his mother before either of them have worked out that detail. A running theme and dramatic irony in this play is the relationship between sight and blindness. We, the audience, much like Tiresias, can see what Oedipus is blind to. And once he can see the truth, he responds by physically blinding himself. Obviously, there is a lot to talk about in this play, and it has been influential in a variety of formats. And I know that you don't normally visit the blog, but I highly recommend you do for this episode. In addition to the usual discussion prompts and space for comments, I've shared a few of my favorite modern interpretations of this play. The link, as always, is in the show notes. On Wednesday, we'll continue the Iliad. We're up to book 12, so we're almost halfway through. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.